It is a colossal strategic and foreign policy blunder that will cost many, many lives. It is also a humanitarian catastrophe. And of course, I'm talking about Afghanistan, where Canadians fought and died and brought hope. And we did so with Afghans at our side as translators or cooks or cleaners, and of course, eventually as fellow soldiers. So we owe them. To witness President Biden's withdrawal, an unconditional withdrawal, without first evacuating Americans and their allies and Canadians and others, it, it is stunning and almost inexplicable. So we're going to someone who we hope will help us understand this situation. Major General retired Dennis Thompson served for 39 years, including as NATO's commander of tax Task Force Kandahar, and subsequently Commander of Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. So welcome and thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Senator Wallen. It's great. So to anyone watching, um, we have known for months, certainly weeks, that the Taliban was on the move. If you were even watching television or, or reading Twitter, you would find out that they were coming. How, how did we get to this situation where troops withdraw and people are left, civilians and Afghans alike? Well, I think, first of all, it's worth noting that nobody predicted the as swift a collapse of the Taliban, sorry, of the, uh, of the government of Afghanistan, the legitimate yeah. government of Afghanistan's um, government to the Taliban in this in this particular circumstance. And it's largely, at least in my experience and in most Canadian soldiers' experience, we we all knew that an Afghan soldier is is pretty tough and they're and they stayed in a fight, but they have to be backed up. They have to have proper logistics, food, water, uh medical care, and as well they have air to be <laughs> yeah, air support, enablers such as unmanned air and all of that when it was when it was taken from them, the, their institutions weren't strong enough to provide it, and so that was a major contributing factor to the collapse of of the Afghan National Security Forces and this rapid advance of the Taliban, who I think themselves were surprised that they were able to take Kabul with virtually no fighting. I, I think that's a really important point that that even they must be surprised as as were the terrorists on 9-11 when the, when the buildings actually fell. To see the international community responding, I don't know whether you've been listening, uh, I'm sure you have, um, to Boris Johnson, to uh, others around the world. There was a, a former UK commander, Colonel Camp, in Afghanistan saying that the scale of this disaster puts the Saigon loss, uh, it, it minimizes it, that it is just, uh, this is beyond anybody's comprehension. Yeah, I, I believe it's on the same scale. Uh, the commitment that the United States made to Afghanistan and a commitment that, by the way, dragged in a whole host of folks, including all virtually all NATO nations and a number of yeah. coalition partners, um, totally shocking to all of us that it occurred in this fashion and it does it does resonate on the same scale as the disaster the united states experienced in vietnam uh, with that uh, telltale picture of people struggling to get on a huey helicopter on top of the united states embassy there's a lot of uh, similarities and uh, and it's rather unfortunate it's also worth noting 
This isn't the first time that a major power has withdrawn from Afghanistan. If you recall, in 1979, no, sorry, 1989, the Soviets withdrew after a 10-year occupation of Afghanistan. But what's different here is they withdrew, and I don't like giving the Russians or the Soviets any credit, but they withdrew in an orderly fashion. Right. The regime stayed in place for two more years, and and uh, largely because the Soviets provided budgetary uh support to the to the Afghan army and ran the airport and did a bunch of other had a bunch of technical advisors on the ground and this really was the course of action that we were hoping to emulate i mean of course they wouldn't say it that way but it was a very similar kind of circumstance so um, yeah. uh, <laughs> we failed miserably and and the russians that uh, i mean the the regime that was put in place by the soviets uh, collapsed 2 years later because they had to pull away that budgetary support yep. uh, due to the collapse of the wall, et cetera. Just to bring us up to date, I know you and many others, and and I've been getting phone calls from people that I met and connected with uh, during my time in Afghanistan. Where are we? Um, the government has said that there are 2,700 people that have come out. Are they Canadians? Are they other foreign nationals that we've put on the plane? Are there any of our Afghan translators, the guys and the men and women and their families that we should have gotten out? Do you, do we even know who they are? Somebody does. I can't tell you the answer <laughs> to that. The government has to tell you that, but I can tell you what I know about the people that we, we are looking after. So we have approximately 400 Afghan families and these are Af the, the head of the family typically is the, the Afghan uh, person who supported Canada's mission while it was on the ground between 2011, 2000, sorry, 2001 and 2014 and, uh, and beyond, because of course it includes the embassy staffers, et cetera. But, you know, in all fairness, most of them got out because they were the low hanging fruit, if you will. And what we did was of those, those 400 families, uh, mostly interpreters, but not exclusively, we helped them find safe houses in Kabul and, and, you know, kept them advised. And by we, I mean, uh, the Canadian charity is a veterans transition network, but there's an affiliated NGO on the ground in, in Afghanistan uh, that is essentially paid for in these safe houses, et cetera, airplane tickets, all of it being paid for through this, this NGO. Um, we looked after 400 of these families and we still are, I mean, we're still connected to them uh, of that group who have applied and uh, there's another group called the Afghan Canadian Interpreters Initiative mm -hmm. who started tracking these people run by a great lady named Wendy Long. And she started tracking these folks as far back as 2017, helping them to do the paperwork that's required by IRCC to come to Canada. Uh, and with that's our immigration huge, department. Just for yeah, sorry, the Immigration <laughs> Refugees and Citizenship Canada. Uh, huge frustration expressed on her behalf. And when it was obvious, uh, well, not obvious, when it was announced by the U.S. that they were going to leave, first Mr. Trump and then Mr. Biden, uh, of course, they started to get very nervous because they had a whole, at that point, 115 interpreters and their families. So let's say for the sake of argument, 115 families. The number ballooned up when we added other people like cooks uh, yep. uh, and drivers, et cetera. Um, they in their frustration because they couldn't get anything to happen inside of the of, of the department of the of IRCC turned to myself 
and Generals Dave Fraser and General uh, Dean Milner. All three of us, Task Force Commanders in Kandahar Province, all three of us, the beneficiaries of the great services provided by these interpreters. We penned a letter, an open letter to the three ministers on the 8th of July of this year. So a while ago, but still, uh, you know, they were so desperate because it's, it's a network of, of, they're almost like young veterans, right? They're guys that work for us, guys and girls that work for us. Anyway, so that letter went in. And it, it it prompted a response. So I think uh, two Fridays later, and, and don't quote me on the date, but I think it's the 24th of July, the three ministers announced this new program to get people out. And you had and, to fill out forms and you had oh, to. Oh, and then that's when you hear the whole dance about an 11-page PDF and, uh, and all sorts of ridiculous instructions. It's as if, yeah. um, you know, somebody was, uh, I sent you the paperwork and you lived in Renfrew, Ontario. And you right. filled it out and only had to drive to the Ottawa International Airport. Well, I, I'm sorry, that's not Afghanistan. So it's complete ignorance of what these people were up against. And, and so they're stashed away in several um, of these safe houses. They get contradictory messages. But when the Taliban take over the city, then uh, we, are ha we were in a position to put one of our Canadians, a Canadian private contractor who's been in Kabul for 11 years, at the entry point with the British uh, battalion that was there, the second second battalion uh, parachute regiment. And he helped uh, for the longest time before the Canadians arrived to get these people uh, vetted, sorted, and onto the airfield. But as a result, and I'm just going to turn here and grab my numbers. For these yep. are all the fresh numbers today. So of those 400 families, as I mentioned, it ballooned up over time. And that represents well over 2,000 people, probably in the vicinity of 2,600 people. And the numbers are approximate because they change. And the only way we can verify them is, is through the direct telephone contact we have with these folks. Um, we managed just in the, today, of those 400 files, it will say 180 of them have been recognized by the IRCC. So we're still missing 55% of our people. They're, they're, the, the paperwork's in but they haven't received an answer yet. And out of that crowd, we think uh, as of yesterday, which is because it, it's closed, like the airport is now closed, the operation, yeah. the air bridge is over. We got about 70 families out or 15, uh, sorry, 17% of the population that we are looking after. Now, now what we're forced to do is, um, is uh, help them navigate their way to a land border, um, maybe pay, pay off, uh, the Taliban, et cetera. I mean, there's a whole number of ways this, this uh, operation could have been conducted. And I think we chose the most bureaucratic and, and straight jacketed one I can think of. Right down to and including, we couldn't let some people on planes because there weren't seat belts for them. Um, you know, I, I really think that this is an extraordinary uh, situation. I, oh, <laughs> what accounts for this? Um, is this particular generation of political leaders not attuned to this? Is it just that it was 20 years ago when people have yeah. forgotten? It's hard to, Canadians see themselves as people who respond in times of need. They We have reached out to other foreign groups, embraced them in our community, and it seems like we're being stopped from even doing what is our natural instinct. Um. 
I don't know that it's 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 on Canadians. And so there's two aspects to that question. One is the the the, the political side, and I know you know all this yeah. stuff, uh, Senator. So there's the, the 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 PMO and all the the chiefs of staff and the political staffers, and then there's the professional uh, public service, including the yeah. Canadian Armed Forces. So I don't think this is a political issue. If I was a minister and I turned to my deputy minister or my chief of defense staff and said, "Do this, like go invade uh, uh, Botswana." That's all I should have to say. Seriously, I shouldn't have to get into the weeds and give them detailed. Uh, and I said some policies, you know, I want yeah. you to withdraw. Like in this case, I want you to prioritize Canadian citizens first, and then we'll get these other guys out, these uh, Afghans who supported Canada. And then, and then we'll go down to the third category, which they added late in the game, you know, uh, women that are under threat, uh, like the journalists, et cetera. Right. So they, 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 they open the aperture, which is another reason why the it's number will of our be families. every woman, by the way, under the Taliban. Oh, yeah, I, I know. Anyway. <laughs> and, and so all of that to say, it, 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 this is as much on the professionals, bureaucrats, as it is on the ministers. Now, that doesn't absolve them of their responsibility, uh, but there was no time between the time we signed that letter, the 8th of July, where we expressly said, we would like you to appoint a senior government official properly resourced and empowered to make this happen. I spent five and a half years in the policy group in Ottawa and in D and D I know how these things work. They're called interdepartmental task forces. I've been involved in several of them for various different crises and it works. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's still a bureaucracy, but it works. And I am convinced they never stood one up until just a couple of days ago when we finally, and we couldn't find out who was running the operation. They wouldn't tell us. Well, this is the problem. They would not you're tell us who was in charge. Campaign, you're not paying attention over here, right? right. That's and and I, I we should be able to do uh, two I, things again, at once. Again, <laughs> I, I, I don't put it on the politicians. You know, if it's that broken, the clerk of the privy council reaches down and says, "You there, DM of IRCC, yeah, appoint a lead, or you, DM of uh, Global Affairs Are Canada, yeah. appoint a lead," and then. Form a, I mean, it's 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 almost a standard operating procedure. I am mm -hmm. completely baffled why it didn't happen. And then the second side of this is there, and and you would have noticed this uh, over the course of your uh, career, is, is there's a tendency now to over centralize everything in government. Yeah, it's not a liberal thing and it's not a conservative thing. It started under Mr. Harper and it didn't change when Mr. Trudeau came in. So it's again, it's not political. We have decided that we want to centralize everything at the highest level and we become what I call a one trick pony. So mm -hmm. we can only do one thing at a time. We can't walk and chew bubble gum. And so yeah. uh, we get ourselves into these crises and, and we can't manage them when clearly the machine is set up to be able to operate through s several crises simultaneously. Uh, but that didn't, that didn't happen here. And as a result, 83% of our families are still in Afghanistan and we're going to have to figure out how to get them out. So uh, Joe Biden's uh, spokespeople and the president himself and, and uh, our politicians here are being asked the obvious question. We are going to leave people behind. It's that simple. There's no other way to get them out. Including American citizens, and in our case, Canadian yeah. citizens. I don't know what the number is. You'd have to ask. Uh, I know what was asked in the press conference, but they, yeah, they didn't want to put their finger on it. But there's a thing called the ROCA. So I'm sure you know the abbreviation stands for Registered uh, Registered 
<laughs> now I've forgotten. Canadians Citizens, abroad. Yeah, yeah, Canadians abroad. Right. Yeah. It's a, anyway. It's a, it's it's held by an embassy, and you are technically supposed to check in when you arrive in a country, so your name's on the ROCA. Well, clearly, if you're going to Florida, or uh, you know, Oktoberfest in in Munich, you yeah. don't bother. But if you go to Afghanistan, the the ROCA is usually pretty accurate. Or if you're in Mali or someplace like that, so that people know you're there. You're a Canadian citizen, your residence is in Kandahar, and you're a contractor for, I don't know, the, the sewage company. So that yeah. when one of these crises occur, you can be contacted and told what to do. So they have to have an idea of how many people they've brought back from the ROCA, and therefore how many people are, are still, um, you know, still haven't made it out of the country. Now, I'm less worried about them, because I don't see the Taliban going after somebody with a passport-carrying Canadian. Uh, when commercial flights uh, resume, and I'm making a big assumption here. Yeah, if, if they, they ever do a resume, they they go to the airport, they get on a plane, they fly home. But those those uh, families that we're dealing with, that would be approximately 330 families. That's not an option for them, even if they do have a Canadian visa. So the Taliban get, has said quite clearly there will be no uh, Afghans leaving the country after right. the 31st of August. Period. Full stop. Right, but uh, you know it's a porous border. The unfortunate thing is, it's only going to be the fittest that make that journey. Yeah, the um, I, I guess people may need this um, highlighted for them as well that even with the August thirty first deadline, that means we're really shutting down operations in the next twenty four forty eight hours because that's the time when the last American troop is to leave. Uh, so everybody that's going, every plane that's going has to be out uh, well in advance of the 31st. Right. Because, you, I mean, it's uh, it's not, I think I said, heard somebody on the uh, press conference say it's not like flipping a switch. It's, uh, right. it's there, there's something that has to happen. So if you back up the timings and figure out how long it's going to take the Americans to get those 5,000 troops out, you know, and you do a, a rearward uh, time and space analysis, that means that... Um, you know, we got you exactly right. 24 to 48 hours on this date, the 25th of, of August to wrap things up. My understanding is that the, um, there are no more people being admitted to the airfield Correct. and that yeah. the Canadians that we have inside and the deserving Afghan families that we've managed to get inside are, that's it. The rest of them are uh, going to be left to their own devices. Too bad. Well, so sad. without, without, without uh without government assistance or, or tangible government assistance but there will still be a committed group of canadians back here that are going to do their damnedest to uh to get them out what we're hearing from the analysts from around the world and those who would know including people like you in the military is that the americans have left behind um their equipment their communications equipment their helicopters their planes, their guns, their um, uniforms, it, it's the drones, I mean, everything that's there. We are now going to be dealing with a very, very different Taliban than the kind of ragtag uh, gang that was there 20 years ago. This is now going to be very sophisticated. It's going to become a homeland, of course, for other terrorist groups. We know they're already there and others will flock there to work and train. So the notion that people will be able to sneak their way out or that there might be a resumption of um, flights, for example, uh, private flights. Are you 
what what's your thinking on that? I mean, do you think that's even possible given what we're now dealing with? Well, there's again, there's lots of nefarious regimes around the world that have regular commercial flights. I don't think that's going yeah. to be a super big issue because there will be people that recognize or at least deal with this government. And I'd like to make a distinction between recognizing a government and talking to or negotiating with the government. They're, they're, as you know, they're two different yeah. things. So we will, I'm almost certain, not recognize that government because we're not in the habit of recognizing governments that took over with which what amounts to a large scale, a very large scale military coup. Uh, we, we, we won't do that. But I don't know that we have a choice but to negotiate with them, uh, you know, uh, on a second track or whatever they want to call it in order to get some of the things accomplished that we need to get accomplished. Um, it, with respect to the military and the Taliban in general, I think people need to understand that Taliban was never a global threat and have no interest in anything outside of their interest. Yes, they can become the harbor to Al-Qaeda. Uh, no, they won't become a harbor to ISIS-K because ISIS is... Uh, <laughs> Is there's no love there's no love lost between those two organizations they they, they follow two different regimes and so um, we we may see uh, an upsurge in basing for organizations like Al Qaeda that will that do have a global global reach. Yep. However, in this case, Mr. Biden has convinced us all, maybe not me, but he's convinced a number of people that he can do counterterrorism from over the horizon, as he says. Uh, it's possible. He cites a number of examples, and, and I can think of several like uh, Nigeria and Kenya, et cetera. But in those countries, there's still a footprint. And so there, there was an opportunity here to leave a footprint on the ground to, uh, yeah, it would be a permanent presence, but it would have kept uh, Afghanistan ticking along while we worked on their institutions. Um, much as we have done, for instance, if you look at the Korean conflict, there have been American troops there since the 1950s, with good reason. And what were two equal countries in terms of their economic development are now entirely different, largely because of the security uh, generated by the presence of American and other armies. So uh, I'm not worried about them invading Pakistan or, or taking on one of their neighbors because they're not interested. They're just interested in their own backyard. Well, and, I mean, Pakistan's uh, their safe place, so they oh, yeah. they won't be doing that. <laughs> um, I, I get. I'm asking part of this because I hear Mr. Trudeau softening the ground um, in terms of we will have to have relations. And as you say, there's an important distinction between recognizing a government and dealing with reality, which is that they are are in control on the ground, but also somehow suggesting that we would be able to continue with the nation building and the funding of uh, democratic efforts or women's organizations. We weren't even realistic about that the first time around. It's hard to imagine how any of that is possible in this circumstance. I mean, I would agree. I don't, I don't know that it's going to be uh, feasible. Um, the Taliban leadership is making the right noises, but it's also important to to point out that the Taliban's not a homogenous organization, the same kind of pyramid style or organization as a as a military. Um, and so you don't know what happens at the coalface where those young Taliban fighters exist. And I think uh, I think we need to bear that in mind because if we do believe that we're going to put some development programs on the ground, 
uh, that's going to require some negotiation with the Taliban, and uh, and some of that will probably be money that's siphoned off and and used for them to prop up their government. They're going to have a heck of a time governing without uh, the the development support that Afghanistan, the legitimate nation, enjoyed, which, as I understand it, and I'm not an economist, was 80 to 90 percent of their GDP was generated, uh, or sorry, their government funds were generated from outside the country. So that you know. Good luck managing this place and and avoiding uh, famine and a whole host of other things under those conditions. Well, as I witnessed myself on on a couple of trips to Afghanistan, what what can't happen again and what won't happen again is our soldiers coming in, our men and women coming in off a forty eight hour op or a seventy two hour op, and before they even had a shower or a meal, they'd go out and rebuild the school building that they had built and the Taliban had then in turn burned down so that young girls could go to school. We went into those schools. We watched the young girls learning how to read and write. That was, that's part of what we were doing there, a big part of what we were doing there. If you're not on the ground, you don't do any of that. That doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, most nation building and it's 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 easy to explain, which I'm going to do in two seconds here, but it's devilishly difficult to get done. The first thing you have to do is establish a safe and secure environment, which isn't exclusively military, but up at the front end, it's an overwhelming military presence, something we never achieved in Afghanistan. And then you slowly introduce other things like police, et cetera. Once you've got a, a, a safe and secure environment in place, then you can put in the rule of law as the next kind of tier, and you, and you, you start to develop... Uh, uh, institutions, police forces, uh, customs and border services, prison services, all the stuff that you need to to establish and maintain the rule of order. And then after that, you can get to good governance, or as we like to say in Canada, POG, right? So peace, order, and good governance uh, is is our uh, is our buzzword. But it's true. You, yeah. Those things, are, one depends on the other. So uh, the, uh, the the the. The fact that we never really established a safe and secure environment across uh, across Afghanistan, with some notable exceptions in some of the provinces to the north, uh, and it was super difficult in Kandahar, is uh, plays into the fact that this entire project, if you will, the 20-year project, was a failure. And it has to be said, it was a failure. When President Biden said the other day that this is on the Afghan army, um, that they were cowards, that they were corrupt, um, that if they won't defend their country, uh, too bad, that's on them. Um, I found that offensive on so many levels, I, I can't begin to say, because it implies that everybody that was there, that that stood up this army, that was there to back them, and as you said at the beginning of our conversation, they needed our help and support. The only reason they succeeded is because we were there uh, doing backup. But to me, that kind of a comment... Um, shows a profound misunderstanding of what is going on in that country, what the reality is in that country. Well, Mr. Biden has his own reasons to state, make those statements um, because he's, he's, he's obviously trying to shift the blame from himself to somebody else. And that happens to be the Afghan security forces, but they do bear the brunt. The institutional level bears the brunt of, of responsibility in, in large measure. Um, and, 
the sudden collapse of the of the Afghan National Army leadership is is uh, indicative of some kind of rot at the interior that certainly the U.S. must have been aware of. We're not because we left in 2014. Right. Uh, but I just find it a little bit peculiar, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, that Hamid Karzai stayed in Afghanistan because you think he'd be the right. first guy who would be swinging from a lamppost somewhere. Right. But there, there is a rot in the interior and the Taliban, who, who the greatest expression, I'm sure you've heard it. You have the watches. We have the time. They took the long strategy and they and they worked their influence through the tribal networks. And I and I think when it's, this thing is analyzed in, in detail later on, we'll find out that there were some nefarious actors on the inside that caused this uh, this collapse. But I I have to admit, I'm sure the Taliban were even fascinated by it. I agree totally that uh, the the leadership of some of the Afghan forces, of course, were corrupt and remain corrupt throughout. But we, we can't lose sight of the fact that 50,000 Afghan soldiers also lost their lives in the last uh, decade. Precisely. Yeah. And, and like I said, the brave, the individual soldier, brave to the point of being foolhardy. Yeah. Quite, quite remarkable at the individual level. Um, but you're dealing with a country. This isn't like training uh, an army in an industrialized state. You get a, a level of illiteracy, et cetera. You're battling a whole bunch of uh, of uh, obstacles, if you will, basic obstacles that you wouldn't see in a modern army in the West. I I, I don't want to dwell too much on President Biden, but I, I was um, reading material around this, and there was uh, a quote from Richard Holb. Holbrook's uh, book, his diary about the time when Joe Biden was vice president. And of course, it's well known that he wanted out of uh, Afghanistan and wanted out of Afghanistan for quite some time. But he basically said, and I won't use the language because it was F that and F this, is, is that he thinks that they'll just get away with it. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it and he will too. Do you think they will? I, I don't know. I couldn't predict the future. I will say this, though. There's a difference between the army that went to Vietnam and the army, the U.S. Army, and even the NATO armies that went to Afghanistan. And that is there were no conscripts. When you send a conscript army into the field, you are sending your sons and daughters to, to, to combat. When you send a professional army to the field and all the malls keep running uh, at the same time and people still go to the theaters and the restaurants are all open it's a distant it's a distant thought unless you happen to be connected to one of those people and that percentage is tiny uh, in the it's small in the US which has an enormous military and it's minuscule here so uh, yeah he maybe he could make that calculation and and uh, get away with it uh, i don't know well i'm not a political analyst we'll see what happens but there is a fundamental difference between the army that went to Vietnam and the American army, which, by the way, at uh, another great institution, I have all the time in the world. I worked, uh, I had a battalion of Americans under command in Kandahar, very solid. And I had, uh, I, I was three years in Egypt as commanding a multinational force and observers with another 700 Americans throughout that three year period that worked with me or for me, if you wish. Um, and uh, helped me out because we had a chapter of Islamic State in the in the Sinai Peninsula in our backyard, and it was it was just as tricky as uh, as any other mission I've been on. So I have all the time in the world for the U.S. military. But as I said before, 
policy is set at the highest level. In this case, Mr. Biden, and that ties the hands of what the U.S. military is is able to do. I think Um, you've made a really important point about the connection. I mean, we have this problem in Canada, which is our bases are hidden away and and we don't even connect uh, the civilian and the military worlds that often. They they live in parallel universes. And so this isn't a big issue I uh, for many in that sense, unless, as you say, you're connected, you have some connection with that country and with the people in it. So how do you think this is going to play out? Are Canadians just going to say at some point, well, okay, we tried our best, that's it? Uh, Or do you think this issue and people like you are working away at it will have public support to keep doing what you're doing? When you say doing what you're doing, you mean in terms of... Trying to, still trying to help people um, escape, leave, find another route out. Oh, we'll Uh, get public support. I mean, we've even, we've even put in, and perhaps you could help help us with this, uh, (laughs) Senator Senator Wallen, we put in a $5 million ask for this veteran transition network to help us keep this network alive. We have had, we raised half a million dollars in a very short period of time uh, in in, in this uh, veteran transition network, in fact, just over a few weeks in order to continue the operations of their uh, on the ground that they have uh, ongoing in Kabul in terms of safe houses and, and, and all the other things that need to be bought for them. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, how they move the money in and out of Afghanistan is uh, it's uh, I have a lot of confidence in this particular organization. <laughs> Yeah. And you have to be, I I understand this has to be below the radar to a certain extent, or it'll be shut down. And you you have to be very careful about even how much information, how many people you're talking about, because the Taliban are now very sophisticated. They're online, they're using Twitter, they're using social networks. It's, It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I would say they're very adept at information operations. They can certainly put the propaganda out, but I don't know that they have a signals intelligence capability like China or uh, or Russia. Well, I really do appreciate um, your your time and insights on this. I wish you all the best in your continued efforts, and that uh, um, and we'll put the pressure on as best we can to make sure that these organizations are funded. I saw what Care Canada did on the ground. You know, they're when when people really have their heart in it, it works. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and thank you for um, for reaching out, because I think we need to keep this on the front burner, even though we're in the middle of an election. Absolutely, we do. Retired Major General Dennis Thompson served for 39 years. And as you can hear and see, he's still serving. Uh, thank you so very much for what you're doing.